All right, well, good morning, Doxa Church. Guys, it is great to be together, great to see you. We have a lot of ground to cover today in 1 Corinthians, so I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible, open up to chapter 11, and we're just going to get right to work. But as you get there, if you are, in fact, like new or, or visiting to Doxa, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you part of the Doxa family today. I uh, hope you feel welcomed, but we are in week 21 of a 32-week study through the letter of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started several years before he wrote this letter that was just really struggling to find their way. They kind of found themselves in a state of, of decline. And as we get into chapter 11 today, all right, what this does is chapter 11 kind of marks like a new section of 1 Corinthians that really up until this point, Paul is, is talking to the Christians in Corinth, and he's been dealing with matters of this kind of personal freedom in light of gospel identity. But starting here in chapter 11, going through the end of chapter 14, Paul kind of just shifts gears a little bit. And now he's not just going to talk to us about how we live together as Christians, but now focusing on how Christians gather together as the church. Now, believe it or not, God actually has ways that he has created the church to gather for both his glory and for our good. And now here's the thing. When we talk about the church, here's what we need to be reminded of. All right, the church is very diverse. And we know that diversity is just like this beautiful thing, but it can also mean and be a difficult thing because whenever there's diversity, there means that there will be this like tendency or temptation for division among people. And this is exactly what is happening in the church in Corinth. And really, these four chapters over the next couple weeks are just going to help us. They're going to help us in a great way to know how to be unified in the midst of diversity, which can bring about division. And this whole section, all right, over the next couple weeks, it has its kind of like apex, its pinnacle in chapter 13, where, where Paul basically says like the secret sauce, the foundation for flourishing in diversity, for remaining united is simply this. It's the way of love. And Doc, so we can't forget this. Like Peter talks about this, above all else, love. That love is ultimately how we gather. Love is how we live together. And love is how we remain unified. And love is how we flourish in the midst of diversity and even in the midst of division. And so this is just, I I hope that this is just going to be intensely practical and helpful for us as the Doxa family. Because Doxa is, in fact, a diverse family. That if you look around, we have men and women, we have rich and poor, we have people with different spiritual gifts, and all of which the next four chapters of 1 Corinthians are really going to address, okay? So I want you just to take a look at this. I'm going to give you a flyover of where we're going, but chapter 11, verse 2, look, verse, through verse 16, chapter 11, verse 2 through verse 16, Paul is going to talk to us about how we live and how we gather in the midst of gender diversity, all right? We're going to get into this today. Then in verse 17 through 34, Paul is going to be addressing gathering in the midst of economic diversity. And this is where he teaches about communion, but it's really the different factions in the church that had emerged between rich and poor, which led to really just division and a misunderstanding of what communion really is. And then in chapter 12 through the end of chapter 14, Paul is going to address gathering as a church in the midst of a diversity of spiritual gifts among God's people. That's going to be a fun week. And so I'm praying, all right, that God's going to use this in a great way. This has been my, my prayer uh, for our church, is that God would break in and the Holy Spirit would just teach us something. Because if one of our core desires here at Doxa is to exist for the glory of God in the good of Madison, 
Hear this, Doxa. We just need to listen really, really well. And we need to have a posture of just coming to the scriptures today, hungry and humble, wanting to hear from God and willing to learn from him. Now, if you remember, Paul, as he writes, starting in chapter seven, he's responding to questions that the Corinthians were asking. And here in our text, he's responding to a question about a diversity in gender and authority and how men and women are kind of living in relationship together. We, we don't have like the exact question, but the Corinthians were asking him, hey, how do we think about this? What do we do? What do we do with gender and authority and women's roles? And so this is the two topics that we're, we're hitting in today, gender and authority, identity and roles of men and women. So it's pretty much something that everybody in Madison agrees upon, so this should be a pretty relatively simple uh, sermon today, right? Not true at all, guys, you can pray for me, right? But this is the truth. And the truth is, is guys, this is one of those passages, I mean, scholars will tell you that this is potentially the most difficult, confusing passage in the entire New Testament. I mean, you could fill books written about just specific words in this chapter, in this room. I mean, there's been so many things, and, and as I've been like praying through this, I mean, I've been studying and talking to different pastors and listening to different sermons and taking notes and just asking my friends who are in ministry, and that really what I'm gonna share to you is kind of just like a summation of all of that. What I feel like God is just leading and what he's teaching in this, but we do this humbly, knowing that this is in fact a difficult passage to understand because of the cultural distance. And it's also been hotly debated because it's just packed with the words of God that can be completely misunderstood and seem wildly countercultural, especially in a city like Madison. And I just need you to know that. And I also want you to know, like, we're also not afraid to stand under the authority of the Bible and just proclaim God's truth to the world. But we do this in a very humble, loving way, simply saying, this is what God says. And Doxa, I just want you to know, like, that is my job. All right, my job is not to just like manage the budget and keep the facility clean and come up with cool and exciting things to talk about every single week, but my job is ultimately just to open up the Bible and say, here's what God says. And as we hear from God, our job then is to simply say, okay, well, what am I gonna do with it? And so this is our posture as we, we get into this. But with that said, I'm just gonna read it all the way through and then we'll get to work understanding and applying it to our lives. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse two is where we're gonna start. Here's what Paul says. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So there we go. Any questions? Right? So everybody's like, yeah. Like, what the heck is this about? Like, what is going on? Like, because we can look at this and be like, okay, guys, like, no more hats in church. Like, kind of bums me out. I, I love the crooked flat bills. You guys know that, right? And ladies, I guess we're going to have to have you, like, cover your head when you come in here. Or you can shave it, but it, clearly that's disgraceful, so you might as well just cover it. So I'm thinking, like, we'll get, like, doxa doilies or bonnets or something like that for... But all this, we know that it all just makes sense because of what Paul says. Like, it's nature. Well, that clears it right up, right? Seriously, like, what are we even to make of this? Guys, this is so confusing. And this is one of those times where you come and you're in your Bible reading plan and you're like, oh, chapter 11, cool. No, right? And you just skip that. You know, what are we to do with this? Doxa, this is God's word. And we just need to be reminded that although it can be confusing... And although this was written to a very specific church and a very specific culture in time with very specific issues, here's the truth, Doxa. All God's word is profitable for us. Everything. Every single word in your Bible is breathed out by God and it's profitable to teach us, to train us up in righteousness. And that includes a wildly crazy text like this. And so we need to do the hard work of discovering the underlying principle that God is teaching here. Because if we can really just grasp the principle, then we can understand Paul's instructions to the Corinthians and we can work to apply it in our time and place. So in my attempt for clarity, here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna simply ask five questions about this text. And the first one is this, okay? In the midst of this gender kind of confusion and talk about roles and identity, the first question is, what are the Corinthians doing right? All right, look at verse two. It's so easy just to like throw stones at the Corinthians and be like, Christians gone wild, they're insane. But look, Paul starts somewhere different. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. And so the Corinthian church was honestly faced in a situation and with an issue of gender very similar to the ones that we face today. And the Christians in Corinth, they wrote Paul and basically just asked for his word, for his understanding of male and female relationships and roles. And Paul, as we just read, he was pleased by this. That their approach to the matter of trying to hear from God and trying to get godly counsel, they wanted God's thoughts on the issues they were facing. And Paul says, man, I'm your pastor, I love you, I've taught you, you've learned some things, you're holding on to God's truths, you're seeking answers from me and from God, and that is awesome, well done. But here is what Paul has as a big concern. The second question, what are the Corinthians doing wrong? And it's this. Guys, while the Corinthians have learned a lot from Paul, they were really just kind of starting to go sideways as it related to their understanding of gender. They were holding on to truths, but really just starting to get really confused. I mean, Corinth, as we've talked about, was just crazy. It was hypersexualized. It was just very, very crazy. The culture was preaching a different message than the scriptures. People were just confused on the things of God, and they needed Paul to kind of step in and help them to understand what is actually going on. And I would submit to you this, 
Doxa, as it relates to the topic of gender, I don't think the Corinthians are very different from many Christians today. Here's what I mean. The Corinthians were getting a lot of cues from culture, but not so much from scripture. And it was leading to just brokenness in the church. And so many Christians today, and this isn't a Newton thing, like this is a generational, every church, we, we tend to hear more from culture and be more informed by culture than we do the scriptures. And this is what was happening in Corinth, and this is what happens today, so this is very applicable to us. But this is why Paul says in verse three, look back, but I want you to understand. All right, so he, he kind of moves quickly from commending them and saying, you're doing great, and then he introduces something that he was greatly concerned about that he needed to teach them. And it's essentially this. All right, Paul says, God made us male and female, and we shouldn't deny this or disregard the gender that God has given us, because that's part of the created order, and it's only when we grasp this and live in it that we will truly flourish in the life that God has given us. This is what Paul is saying. Now, let me just pause, and you might be looking at that passage and saying, well, that sounds great. Where the heck did you get that? I don't see that in chapter 11, right? And if you did think that, good on you. You're paying attention, because I didn't get this explicitly from chapter 11, but what we need to understand is that chapter 11 is kind of written on the backdrop of going all the way back to creation. This is what Paul says. If you look to verses eight and 12 in chapter 11, he's referencing back to creation. And so whenever Paul or Peter or Jesus start talking about gender and identity and roles, they don't go to culture, they go to creation. And so for us, what we have to do before we can understand 1 Corinthians 11, we have to go back. We have to go back to the book of Genesis, we have to go back to the book of origins and see what the Bible as a whole has to say about men, women, gender, and how we live together and flourish. And this leads us to our third question, and it's this is what did the Corinthians need to know? And what do we need to know? All right, so keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, and I want you to turn to the book of Genesis. There's gonna be two passages that we need to consider, or nothing in 1 Corinthians 11 is gonna make any sense. All right, so the first one is Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Here's what we got. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made or created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I want you to turn one page forward, Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its space with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I need to give you a few significant observations from Genesis that will help us greatly to understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The first is this. We need to know that God created gendered human beings in his image. And I know, guys, as I I prepared to preach on this, in a city like Madison, like coming up on the stage, there's like butterflies in my stomach because you're like, this is, that in and of itself, that statement that I just made is wildly countercultural. It's wildly controversial. And I know that many people have been told that gender is not rooted in creation, but it's actually rooted in culture, meaning the way that we consider male and female and masculine and feminine doesn't come from God, but it comes through sociological conditioning or choice. But the truth is, gender is not taught, it's not chosen, and it's not fluid, but it's given by God. It's a created design that God has created gendered humans. And not only did God create gendered humans, but after he creates them, what does he say? He says it is good, male and female. And God says, this is the way I intended it, and it's actually good. And so what this means for us is that if humanity is to truly flourish, we need to live according to the design and the pattern of our creator, embracing maleness and embracing femaleness because both are equal and both are good. Guys, this is a huge key to understanding 1 Corinthians 11. The second observation is this. Both male and female are made in the image of God, equal but different. Equal but different. And this is so important, because again, in our world today, we don't think this way. We tend to think something is different so it's not equal. This is not how it is with God and his creation, that things can actually be equal but different, all right? Think of your hands, right? Lisa always tells me not to talk with my hands because I have like gorilla hands, but this is helpful now because you can all see them, right, okay? So like equal but different, it's left hand, right hand. Both needed, both different, both equal. This is what, how Paul, this is how the Bible speaks about male and female relationships, both equal and good, but different, it's right hand, left hand. And if you look back to verse three, this is what Paul is getting at. Look what he says, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And I'll just be honest with you, like this is where things get very controversial, hotly debated, like if you've researched this at all, you're like, oh my gosh, what are you gonna say about this? But it's all around one word. It's all around the word head, which in the Greek means authority. That while men and women are equal in value, there are different roles and authority structures that God has created. And this is really just the big principle here in chapter 11. And Paul, as he talks about this, he gives us three ways in which authority manifests itself. Okay, first, if you look back to verse three, there's three movements in verse three. He says, that Christ is the head of every man. And simply put, what we would say is that Jesus is king. He's king over all. He's humanity's savior and Lord, and in Jesus' divine authority, he is the head over every human being, the authority over every human being. And even though people in this world would not 
like agree with that statement. They don't see Jesus in that way. That doesn't change the truth of Hebrews chapter 2 that says all things have been put in subjection under Jesus' feet. And it doesn't change the truth that we see in Philippians chapter 2 that at one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus is the head or the authority over all of humanity. But Paul goes on in the second movement. He says, well, that is true. But then he says, the head of a wife is her husband. And this is where people tend to squirm a little bit, right? Like blood pressure is rising for some of you ladies, and you're like, I'm already emailing you right now, right? (laughs) But if we think about Genesis, we see that men and women are both made in the image and the likeness of God, male and female. That what it means to be a man and a woman is different. That male and female are absolutely equal because they're both image bearers of God, but they're in fact different. And again, I need to say this, different is not bad. Always think right hand, left hand, equal but different. And the different roles that men and women were created to carry out since the very beginning is this. God's creation, he designed man to be the head. And the woman is to be the helper. This is Genesis. Now again, I know many people, some of you ladies here, you'll hear that and you'll say, I don't want to be a helper. That seems like a denigration to me. But I just want you to know, and I just want you to consider this, guys. God the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is called the helper. In the Greek, it's paraclete. God is our helper. And so it's not a denigration. It's not even close to a denigration. It's not a denigration to be a helper like the Holy Spirit. The woman comes from the side of man, so she's not out front like feminist ideology teaches, and she's not behind like chauvinistic ideology teaches, but she's on his side as a helper, a lover, a friend, an equal partner. This is how God has created humanity, male and female, equal but different. And I love how Matthew Henry beautifully explains this creator. I'm going to quote him. He says this, Eve, being made after Adam and out of him, puts an honor upon that sex as the glory of man. This is 1 Corinthians 11.7 that he's quoting. If man is the head, she is the crown. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined, one removed further from the earth. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. This is how God has created male and female to interact. And in the third movement here, Paul shows that headship and authority, look at back, and the, the head of Christ is God. I'm going to teach you a few big words. I usually don't do that because I don't do well with big words, but there's a couple big words today, all right? Theologically, what we call this is functional subordinationism, all right? So if you're ever in a quiz bowl, there you go. You're, I'll take 1% of your earnings, all right? So the only, the thing what we need to know about functional subordinationism is this is that God exists as a trinity, meaning that there is one God existing as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now we have to ask questions. Are they equal? Docs, are they equal? 
Yes, they are. Do they share the same attributes? Yes. Are they each fully God, equal to one another? Yes. Is there authority within the Trinity and a deference and submission to that authority? Yes. You cannot miss this. This is so significant to understand 1 Corinthians 11, that Jesus Christ submits to God the Father. You see this perhaps most clearly if you read the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I didn't come, but the Father sent me. And Jesus says, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of my Father, that I didn't come to speak what I want to speak, but I came to speak the words that my Father gave me, and I came to do his work, not my work. And so Jesus, he shows deference and respect and submission to God the Father. Now again, is he equal to God the Father? Yes. Do you see how important it is to understand this, to understand 1 Corinthians 11? That Jesus simultaneously says, I'm equal to God the Father, and we are in fact one, but I also submit to the Father's authority. So what does this mean? Doxa, it's this. We were created in what? The image and the likeness of God. Male and female, Meaning that as men and women, we look to the Trinity for our example of what relationship is. That men and women are equal image bearers of God, but within this relationship and this creation, there is an authority that is to be exercised and respected. That just as Jesus Christ is head over the church, so the husband is head over the wife. This is what this is teaching. And it's not just here, but it's, it's throughout the Bible. I mean, Ephesians chapter five, Galatians chapter three, really this is just a New Testament common theme. And so practically, this means two things. All right, for the man, this means that the man is supposed to be an authority like Jesus. Now men, let me say that again, because maybe you heard that the man is supposed to be an authority and you forgot like Jesus. Which this is not like the men is supposed to be the, the leader and he puts his foot down and just says submit. He's supposed to be an authority like Jesus. Loving, serving, caring for, blessing, nurturing, protecting his wife just as Jesus protects his bride, the church. Leading by laying down his life. Not leading as a tyrant and a little boy on a power trip. So many men do that, and they're cowards. They're weak. It's being humble like Jesus. Jesus is not just our king and our savior, but he's also our model. And so we look to Jesus as his examples. And men, you need to do this. We need to constantly do this, or we're gonna carry on what has been a tradition throughout the history of the world of being really bad men and just messing up everything. Now for the woman, women are supposed to be like Jesus, insofar as they respect the authority that is over them, providing it's not in a contradiction to God. And so what that means, that doesn't mean that a woman is just like, well, my husband just said, submit to me. You're gonna do it, I'm the leader, I'm the head, I'm the authority. Because if the husband is saying to do something in contrast to what God says is good and it's sin, you don't follow that man, you follow the King Jesus. That is not headship. And guys, there is so much problems around this. And I'll tell you this. Guys, the reason that I have such like a trepidation to come up here on the stage and the reason why this could be like a tense topic in a place like Madison is because 
A lot of women reject this because they haven't experienced good, godly Jesus like men. And throughout the history of the world, we, we have seen just a culture of misogyny where men have twisted and perverted God's word to hold down women. And that, we say, is evil. And, and if we just had more godly, Jesus-like men, this would be a passage that we would come to and just be like, praise the Lord. Like, wow, that's what it looks like to be one? There, it wouldn't be so difficult. Man, this is a call for us to be like Jesus. Not being cowards, not being selfish, but like Jesus. And so, Doxa, we just need to understand humanity flourishes when created gender is embraced and is flourishing in itself. That men don't flourish when they live as women, women don't flourish when they live as men. And this is the overarching principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I know that many people in our city would disagree with this. And I just want you to know, some of you don't know me, because my posture up here is just one of trying to be humble, but I want you to know that we grab hold of this because God is our ultimate source of truth. And we live under the authority of King Jesus. And we're not gonna be like Thomas Jefferson, okay? If you are history nerds, Thomas Jefferson came to the Bible with a pair of scissors and he basically cut out any verse that he didn't think was right or true or he didn't like. We don't have that liberty. We don't come to the Bible and say, this is not, no, this isn't right, that's good. That's, we come to the Bible and say, shape our view of truth. And when it comes to the formation of our truth, I've talked about this before, all of us get our truth from one of three areas. It's either internal, external, or eternal. Some of you, you sit in here and you are your own ultimate source of authority. You look internally and you functionally become your own God and you decide what is right and wrong and true and false. Others of you, you're like, I'm not that intellectual, right? I'm not gonna trust my own thoughts. Like I can't even remember my phone number, right? And so you look externally and you say, well, this is what culture is doing. This is what my family says. This is what the political party that I follow says. That must be true. As Christians, I just want you to know we don't have that luxury that we have to look to the eternal. We stand under the word of God. This is just our posture. And so we stand here and we just simply say what God says because we're under the authority of God and his word. This is the Christian life. And even though some people will hear this message and think that it sounds like restrictive and just oppressive and they'll, they'll make statements and comments that the Bible is just like a misogynistic book, I just need you to know that this is simply not true. Because if you read the Bible and you study the history of the world, you find that it's actually Christianity that has been responsible for elevating the value of women. So for example, in, in this time that 1 Corinthians 11 was written, women were seen as property and not persons. The gospel of Jesus came and gave women dignity and honor and personhood. And the fact that women are in this church in Corinth and they're seen as valuable members and they're speaking and they're praying and they're prophesying, you just need to know like how radical this was. This wasn't happening anywhere else. The Jewish synagogues would never have a woman up on the stage. And now, 
These women are coming into the church and they're given personhood and value and they're leading in significant ways. And Paul is just saying, that's great, do it in the right way. But guys, you just need to know, this was altogether new. It was God's people embracing and following God's truths that led to the elevation of women. And so men and women are equal in value, but have different roles, which complement each other as part of God's good design. All right, and what I'm describing here is a position that Doxa holds, and here's your second big word of the day, is called complementarianism. All right, I want you to take a look at this graph. It's gonna come up behind me. I think this will be helpful for us just kind of understanding kind of how people tend to view gender and how men and women interact with each other. All right, this is kind of like just a spectrum. The first is feminism. And I'm gonna be as like honoring as I can with this perspective, but feminism is a position that pretty much altogether rejects biblical authority. And many feminists just kind of fight vehemently, like aggressively for the, the kind of like the rights of women, but even more than the rights of women, but the superiority of women, the elevating them above men. Egalitarianism is another one. It's essentially evangelical feminism. And within this view, okay, that there is a, a grasping and accepting of biblical authority, but this view interprets kind of like key scriptures in a way that says there's essentially no difference in men and women. Men and women are altogether pretty much the same, and so everything that they do, there is no like authority or anything like that, there's no henship, we're all the same. Next is complementarianism. Right, and I didn't put this in the middle to be like, hey, look, we're in the, right in the center of this, right? But this is just the, how this spectrum works. But this is where doxa kind of lands. Complementarianism believes in the authority of Scripture, and it views some of these key passages that we've looked at in a way that says there is a created design that God had since the beginning where men and women are equal, but there's different roles and they complement each other. Right hand, left hand, both needed together, complementing each other. That this is the flourishing of humanity. And this view, complementarianism, really just kind of opposes getting rid of gender, and it opposes using gender to oppress and marginalize women. And so in this, complementarianism, there is a high elevation of women in leadership in the church. And this is where we land. Patriarchal, this is far more strict and the extremely conservative. They teach that basically men and women kind of exist in different spheres and that women should not really have any significant leadership in the church. That if you were to go to a church in this camp, you would never see a woman up on stage singing or praying or reading scripture or sharing or anything like that, but they would be with other women and they would be kids. This is patriarchal. And then there's chauvinism. This is the thought that men are better and smarter than women. And this basically can be traced back to a guy named Aristotle who was a philosopher and said that women were morally and mentally less capable than men and weren't at the same level of men. And at the same, so you can thank him for that, okay? So at, this, at the spectrums over here, right? Guys, it's outside. There's something, if I'm trying to be super charitable about feminism and chauvinism, I can be like, okay, maybe there's some good things in there, but it's outside Orthodox Christianity because it devalues men and women. 
And we reject any view that diminishes the value and worth of men and women. You just need to know this as a church. And if you ever just want to kind of succinctly explain where our church lands on gender roles, here it is. We are distinct but dependent. Distinct but dependent. We're different, but we need each other. So what did the Corinthians need to know? Paul teaches them, as he references back to Genesis in verses 8 through 12, that men and women are equal and different, but made in the image of God, male and female, have different roles to help humanity flourish. And this leads us to the fourth question, what did the Corinthians need to change? And so with all that background, okay, it's so significant that we know the background, but with that background, I just want to try my best to give you my best take on what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying, all right? So in first century culture, it was very customary for women to cover their heads and for men to keep their heads uncovered. All right, head coverings were basically just like a, a cultural thing that demonstrated femaleness, marriage, and submission to authority. And the issue at hand for Paul is that men and women should present themselves in a way that honors their gender uniqueness, especially when they're up front in the church. And they should do this in a way that is respectful in the surrounding culture. And Paul here is addressing a situation, a specific situation, where certain wives in Corinth were gathering for church, they were taking off their head coverings, and with that action, they were denying the order and the design of God's good creation, thus confusing the message being presented at the church gathering. And this is why he says that a woman should keep her head covered. And we don't quite understand it because it was a distant cultural thing, but it spoke a loud and clear message at the time to people. And so what we had is we had some women who were in the church who had come to Jesus in faith. They understood what Paul was teaching in places like Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5, that in, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That in Christ, there is no more Jew or Greek or slave or free or man or woman, but we are all one in Christ. They understood this. And these wives were just embracing this freedom and this reality but to such an extent that they were essentially saying there's no difference between men and women. And I'm not under the authority of anyone but Jesus. And so their action of removing their head covering was culturally confusing gender. And I think it's helpful to think that the head covering of like kind of like a, a wedding ring, we don't have like a, a modern day equivalent of it, but that's a pretty maybe close one. And so what these women were doing, they were basically just showing up at church, standing up in front of the church, taking off their wedding ring to pray and to prophesy. And as they were doing this, they were essentially saying, I am my own person. Maleness, femaleness means nothing. Gender, not a big deal. I'm free. I'm not in the authority. That's my husband. That's great. He's, he'll help me cook dinner or whatever, but I'm not under his authority. I'm my own woman and I can do what I want. And as they did this, they were denying the authority of God and the design and the roles that he had given to both men and women in marriage. And so Paul says, you should just keep your head covering on since this was the cultural thing that carried that message. And Paul's introduction to this is he roots it in creation, verses seven through 12, and he points to the equality of men and women, but the differences in the gender. And if you look at verse 14, he kind of sums up this position and he says that cultural things, kind of like head coverings that demonstrate authority and show gender should not be rejected, but embraced. 
and that nature itself teaches us that men and women are different, that men should look like men and women should look like women because men and women are in fact different and this is plain to the eye. So overall, Paul was ultimately concerned, and I want you to hear this, he was ultimately concerned that both men and women should be exercising their leadership gifts. Do you hear that? Men and women together, complimenting each other, leading the charge of ministry, but doing it with appropriate authority while presenting themselves in a manner that celebrates the uniqueness of their respective genders. And while the cultural markers for this will like vary from time to time and place to place, the principle endures. So although our appearance should not be dictated by culture around us, we should be sensitive to how we actually appear within the context, especially regarding to those whom we minister so we don't confuse the message of the Bible. Because this is my best shot at understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many people would disagree and we're just humbly here and saying like, I think this is what God is teaching. So, last question, what does this mean for us? Two things that I just want us to, I pray that we just embrace walking out of here. Number one, we need to embrace the idea that God's design is in fact good. God doesn't make mistakes. And when he creates and speaks and says it is good, it is good. And humanity flourishes when we live in God's design. So maleness and femaleness has been God's good plan from the beginning. And while sin has twisted like our understanding of it, it's messed up our experience around this subject, our job is to simply cling to what is true and how God has designed creation. And his design for gender authority and roles are in fact good for men and women And men and women, when they understand and embrace and live in the significance of being made in the image of God, male and female, different but equal, human experience, life, life at home, the church life, everything will get better because we will be living in the plan of God, flourishing. But the hard part about this is we live in a time and place that is very confused about gender. And it's it's even being debated if there's even such thing as men and women. But as Christians, what we do is we come under the authority of God and we say with love, but conviction, that God's design for male and female is good, true, and needed for the plan of God. And so, hear this, this is not about men having short hair or women having long hair. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, my, hair, my hair's touching my ears. Like, is that the... No, it has nothing to do with that. Because this doesn't exactly mean the same thing in our culture as it did in that day. But in the Bible, there are principles and there are methods. The principles are transcultural, they're universal. The methods are culturally applicable and appropriate. So the principle here is that women should appear to be women, men should appear to be men. In some cultures, this looks different. But the principle is still the same. And so our job is to extract the principle from this cultural methodology and we ask, how should a man look and how should a woman look and present themselves as masculine and feminine for the glory of God? And most people seem to recognize masculinity and femininity when they see it. So we should just embrace looking culturally like the gender that we have been given and assigned by God. And guys, again, I say this gently and just filled with love because I know that there are struggles with gender identity. And that is very real. 
And I know people who live this. And as people who are filled and marked by the love of God, we don't just look at a confused world with contempt and say, get over it, just be a man, just be a woman. We don't do that. Sin is real, it's caused all all problems that we live in, it's distorted our world, and some people are confused about their gender. Some people hate their gender. And oftentimes, underneath this gender confusion, there's significant issues of abuse. And because God is our helper and our healer, our job is not to just throw rocks at people and tell them how they're wrong and and look at them with disgust or anything like that, but our job is to be like Jesus. Like, seriously, he is our model, and so we go to people, we love people, we point them to the healer, the helper, for the sake of redemption. This needs to be our posture, doxa, that we embrace God's good design. We don't get mad at people, but we love people and help them to understand God's good plan and the redemptive healing nature of the gospel. And the last thing I'll say is this, is guys, everything we talked about today is around one issue. It's our submission to Jesus as Lord. If you're new to Doxa, I just want you to know that we wanna be a church. We wanna be Christians who seek to apply the Bible and live faithfully for and with God. Because we ultimately don't follow cultural trends, we follow the words of the king. And there's gonna be people that disagree with our practice. And if you're sitting here and you do that, I just want you to know that all we're trying to do, all we're trying to do is live faithfully to God's word to us. That's all we're trying to do. We're under the authority of the Bible and we're trying to honor Jesus with our lives by following his words. And we just simply don't have the right to determine what's right and wrong and true and false, even if it's wildly countercultural but we look to God, we hear from God, and we seek to follow him. And this might, hear this, this might seem completely radical to some of you, but do you know what it actually is? Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. You hear from God, you respond to God, and we just listen to his words. So Doxa, Jesus is the lead pastor of Doxa Church. You need to know that. He's the lead pastor of this church. And so we follow him. That's our goal, to live for the glory of God and the good of those around us. Let's pray and ask God to let that be true. God, thank you for your word. God, I come to passages like this and I'm so thankful that you say you are our helper. And so, Father, would you help us to understand this, to apply this to our lives? God, we want to just live for your glory. We want to honor you with our lives. But so many times, like the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus are so in opposition to the world around us, and we just need your help. So Holy Spirit, would you just empower us by your grace to live as faithful sons and daughters. Thank you for your good design. We love you. 
let our lives be marked all for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.